Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. While you're turning there, let me give you a quick review of what we have seen so far in this book. In chapter 1, we saw the glorious vision of the Son of Man, Jesus. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus sends letters to seven churches with encouragement and rebuke. In chapter 4, we saw the heavenly throne room of God. And in chapter 5, Jesus appears in that throne room as the slain lamb. He's the only one worthy to take the scroll and to open its seven seals. The scroll is a covenant lawsuit document, a divorce document. Jesus is bringing lawsuit against Israel because they've been unfaithful to him and they've rejected and killed him. Then in chapter 6, the seals on the scroll begin to be broken open, indicating the judgments that will fall on Israel. Chapter 6 contains the first six seals, but before the seventh seal, we find an interlude. Chapter 7 is the interlude, and we had the 144,000 who were sealed with the mark of God so that they don't experience the judgment, and we see also the great multitude from every nation, and both of those groups ultimately represent the church, the faithful people of God. After the interlude of chapter 7, we have the opening of the seventh seal in chapter 8. And when that seal is opened, what it does is it initiates seven more judgments, seven trumpet judgments. And in chapters 8 and 9, then, we have the first six trumpet judgments, which culminate with, a, with successive invasions of Jerusalem, first by demons and then by the Roman army. And that brings us up to chapter 10. And now that we've done six trumpet judgments, instead of finding the seventh trumpet judgment, what we find is another interlude. So just like we had an interlude before the seventh seal, now we have an interlude before the seventh trumpet. So we're going to look at the first part of that interlude this morning in chapter 10, and the second part of that interlude next week in chapter 11. Let's go ahead and read chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. 
and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. All right, we'll look at this text in two parts. It's probably divided for you in your Bible as you look at it into two paragraphs. There's verses 1 through 7, and then there's verses 8 through 11. I'll take a little bit more than half of our time this morning just to explain the text, what the symbols mean, uh, who it is that we're talking about. And then I'd like to focus in on just one particular doctrine that we find in this passage and finish by asking the question of what that doctrine means for our lives. What demands does it place on us? What hope does it give us? All right, so let's start in those first seven verses by asking the question, who is this mighty angel? And the answer, I believe, is that the mighty angel is Jesus Christ. If it sounds strange to call Jesus an angel, there's a couple things we should remember. First, angel just means messenger and, or, or one who comes with a message. Jesus here has a message regarding the scroll. Second, in the Old Testament, we see Jesus appear quite often and he's called the angel of the Lord. So it's not unusual for Jesus to be referenced as an angel. Doesn't mean that he's a created being. Rather, from John's human perspective, he's seeing a heavenly being who is appearing in something like a human form and the way he chooses to describe him is as an angel. And there's several clues in the text that help us to identify this angel as Jesus. So let me just kind of run through these so that it helps us to think about, first of all, the fact that this is Jesus, but also helping us to think about the presentation that John gives us of what Jesus looks like, because there's no details in this text that are unimportant, right? We may not understand what all of them are, but some of them we can understand, and it's helpful for us to notice them. So first, he's coming down out of heaven under his own power and authority. In the last chapter, we saw Satan coming down to Jerusalem, but we were told that he was like a star fallen from heaven to earth. This angel in chapter 10 is not fallen. He's coming down out of heaven. Second, he's wrapped in a cloud earlier in the series and also in the fall in our study in Matthew 24, we saw that God is often described as coming on a cloud, especially when he's coming in judgment. In the Old Testament, God is sometimes described as the cloud rider. And in the Exodus from Egypt, when he led the Israelites out, God appeared in the cloud, leading the way. And then later he appeared in the cloud over the tabernacle. For example, Leviticus 16, verse 2, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So it makes sense that Jesus here is clothed with the glory cloud. Third, there's a rainbow over his head. Just like the rainbow in chapter 4 surrounded the throne of God, here the rainbow's over Jesus' head. As we've seen before, this is like Ezekiel's vision. Remember, when we're trying to understand, we've just got to always be going back to the Old Testament. That's where John is drawing much of his imagery. And this is Ezekiel 1, verses 27 and 28. There was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And just like the rainbow in the Old Testament was a symbol of God's mercy, his covenant 
Here, Jesus is bringing a message that involves mercy. It also involves judgment, but it's good news for some that this message is coming. Fourth, this angel has a face like the sun. We've seen this description before in Revelation 1, verse 16, in the vision of the Son of Man. We were told that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In Revelation 1, that's a vision of Jesus, and it is here as well. Fifth, this angel has legs like pillars of fire. When Israel left Egypt, we read that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. We're also told that God walked before the people and that he stood before them. So here it's legs like pillars of fire. Sixth, this angel is holding the scroll. Here it's called a little scroll. That's probably indicating that it looks small because the one holding it is so great and mighty. In chapter 5, remember the scroll was at the right hand of God the Father. No one was found that was worthy to take the scroll. But then the slain lamb, Jesus, comes on the scene and he's able to take the scroll. He comes to the throne, he takes the scroll, and so now he appears in chapter 10 holding the scroll. And the scroll is open. In chapter 5, it was sealed with seven seals. But now, as we've continued through the book of Revelation, the seals have been opened. Broken open by the lamb. So now the scroll is open. And this is Jesus holding the scroll that's now open because he's broken open the seals. And a seventh and final reason that this angel should be understood to be Jesus is that, he's ca that he calls out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. In chapter 5, Jesus was introduced to us as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So here when he speaks, it is with a voice like that of a lion roaring. So it seems pretty clear that this mighty angel here is Jesus himself. Now, since the scroll is central to what's going on in this chapter, let me just highlight again what the scroll is. Jesus is holding it, okay, because he's the only one that was found worthy to take it in chapter 5. And it's open because he's opened the seals on it. Remember that the scroll is a legal document it's a covenant document. On the one hand, it's a divorce decree. Remember, God had a covenant with Israel. He was their husband. And Jesus here is divorcing Israel because she's been unfaithful. She's been adulterous. She's gone after other gods. And now she will face judgment. On the other hand, it's the opening of the new covenant. God's taking a new bride, the church. By the end of the book of Revelation, we will find ourselves at the marriage supper of the Lamb, his new bride. But here in the judgment section, as these trumpet judgments unfold, we're seeing the judgment of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. When Jesus calls out with a loud voice like a lion, then what happens? Seven thunders sound. So John sees what these thunders are, seven more judgments of some kind, we assume. But a voice from heaven tells him not to write it down. Seal it up. Well, that reminds us of what we've seen before in Daniel chapter 8, 
where Daniel is told, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So Daniel was told, look, I'm giving you a vision. This is not about to happen, so seal it up because it's going to be a while. And, and we find that it was a couple hundred years. Here, John's writing down what he's seeing in these visions because it's about to happen. Tells us that right off the bat in Revelation 1. Says the same thing at the end of the book too. But this part of the vision, he's told to seal up. And we don't know what necessarily then these thunders are. And I should pause here and just take note that there are things God doesn't tell us. It's good for us to realize that. God's under no obligation to tell us everything we want to know. He chooses to keep some things secret. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And there's two things I want you to notice in that verse. The first is this. We should be content when God chooses not to reveal something. It's a reminder that he knows more than us. He's smarter than we are. We're not on an even playing field with God. He's superior to us, and we should be humble. Second, though, well, and let me just maybe, for the kids' sake, illustrate that. Kids, maybe you've had the experience of you hear your parents talking about something, and you say, what were you talking about? And your parents say, we weren't talking to you, or not something that we're going to explain to you right now. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I see a little, some smiles and laughter there, yes. Well, that's how it is with us and God, right? We should be content when God chooses not to tell us something. But the flip side that I want you to see is this. We are responsible to obey what God has revealed. Those things belong to us, that verse says. And it belongs to us that we may do all the words of the law. So don't focus on what God hasn't told you. Instead, work on obeying what God has told you. We all have plenty of work on just with what God, work to do with just what God has revealed to us. What's the significance of the fact that Jesus is standing here with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea? Remember that usually in the book of Revelation, when we see the land, it's referring to the land of Israel, and the sea is usually indicating the Gentiles. So this is showing us that God, that Jesus is the sovereign king over the whole world, Jew and Gentile. And the scroll covenant that is being enacted here, the new covenant, will include people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Remember where we're at in biblical history here. They were right before 70 AD, when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. So at this point, the temple is still standing. Think about the New Testament letters to the various churches. The question continued to come up, what should we require of the Gentile Christians? Think about the, the, just the, the process of the formation of the church. A lot of what those letters are dealing with, a lot of what we see in that story of the early church in the book of Acts, 
has to do with this relationship between Jews and Gentiles. The church started in Jerusalem with Jewish Christians. And as they started, where did they meet? Well, they met in the temple courts. They continued many of the rituals that marked them as Jews. But as time went on, more and more Gentiles became Christians. And so those questions get raised. How much Jewish ritual should we require of them? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the Jewish calendar of festivals? Do they need to avoid the foods that the Old Testament law prohibited? And that's what the Jerusalem Council was all about. That's what Peter's vision of that sheet coming down from heaven with the unclean animals was about. That's why Paul confronted Peter when Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. As long as the Jewish temple was still standing in Jerusalem, there would be pressure for Gentile Christians to become like Jews. There'd be questions about the place of the Jewish rituals in the life of the church. But now the seventh trumpet is about to sound. The temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. The entire sacrificial system and all of the rituals that went with it are done. The kingdom of Jesus is not simply the kingdom of Israel. It's a worldwide kingdom, Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Jesus raises his right hand and swears he's giving legal testimony here in God's courtroom and he swears that there will be no more delay. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. So the timing is clear. This is just about to happen, as John writes. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to answer the question, what is the mystery here? This mighty angel, Jesus, says the mystery will be fulfilled. What is the mystery? Well, in the Bible, a mystery is something that had been hidden but is now revealed. And in the New Testament, the main thing that's called a mystery is the church. The church was part of God's plan all along. But we didn't understand that in the Old Testament. Not until Christ came was it fully revealed that God's plan was that his people would be made up of Jew and Gentile, many people from the whole world. All right, Ephesians chapter 3, follow along with me. Let's read verses 4, 5, and 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, Paul writes, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the mystery had been hidden, but now it's been revealed. And look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles are now part of the people of God. And they're not, you got to hear this, they're not like a second class citizen. They're not a different clan within the people of God. Look at the phrasing Paul uses. They are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. What God promised to Abraham now belongs to Gentile Christians. 
just as much as it does to Jewish believers. There is no separation. That's the mystery, the church. Continue on in Ephesians 3. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. Of this gospel, this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This mystery was hidden for ages. That means it was always part of God's plan. The church is not God's plan B. And now this church, Jew and Gentile together, is a display of the wisdom of God. And this eternal purpose of God has been realized, brought to fruition in Christ Jesus. This is the new covenant. This is the scroll now open and being enacted. So come back with me to Revelation 10. And let's move to the second part, verses 8 through 11. Revelation 10, verses 8 through 11. I think what we've been talking about will become a bit clearer here in these verses. Here John is given the scroll and told to eat it, which he does. And it's sweet in his mouth, but bitter once it's swallowed. This is based on the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is sent to prophesy against Israel because they're a rebellious house. And in Ezekiel 2, we read this. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, just like our scroll in Revelation does. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So the scroll is a covenant message of judgment against Israel here in Ezekiel. Now that's the end of chapter 2. Here's how chapter 3 begins. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So we have a prophet who eats a scroll and it's judgment against Israel and it's sweet in his mouth. Does that sound familiar? It should. Then Ezekiel is told that the people will not listen to his warning. And in verse 14, Ezekiel says, I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. So it started out sweet, a message of mercy and opportunity for repentance, but it ends in bitterness because the people reject the message. Now, obviously, John models his explanation on Ezekiel. And the sweetness and bitterness of the scroll mean something similar. 
the same message brings both sweetness and bitterness. In John's case, the sweetness is that the prayers of the martyrs are being answered. The church is being vindicated as God's enemies are being judged. But the bitterness is that those enemies are Israel. The judgment is on Israel. They've become God's enemy and now she's facing the bitterness of that judgment. And finally, John is told that he'll prophesy about peoples and nations and languages and kings. In other words, now that we see the people of God is Jew and Gentile Christians, there will be messages about the church as this book goes on. The scope of God's people, God's kingdom has expanded. And here's the main idea, the main point of doctrine that I want you to hear out of this this morning. God's kingdom is growing to encompass the whole world. God's kingdom is growing to encompass the whole world. We've seen in this chapter that God's people is expanding. Not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Not just the land, but also the sea. Not just Israel, but the world. And there are so many places in the Old Testament that we could go to see this, to hear the prophets foretell it. But let's just look at one this morning. This is the only other place I'm going to have you turn. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4. This is an interesting passage, partly because you could actually read the same thing by turning to Micah chapter 4. It's the same verses because it's quoted there, which tells us that there's some significance to it, some importance to it. But we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 2 together. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Isaiah 2, and follow along with me, verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So here we have a picture of the expansion of the kingdom, the influence of the gospel. It's the reign of King Jesus. Great numbers of people becoming Christians. So much so that entire nations are characterized by worshiping Jesus. They come looking for God's law. They want to learn it so they can live by it. By the way, that's something God said would happen if Israel ever actually obeyed his law, that people would look and say, what nation is there that's got a God like this who who has a law like this? Because this is so perfect a law this this tells us exactly how we're designed to live and that the nations would stream to israel to find out about this god well it takes jesus coming on the scene for that to begin to happen they want to learn it so they can live by it they're not compelled to come there political power 
It's not that they're captives of war or anything like that. They're coming because of the grace of God. It's nations characterized by following God's law. In verse 4, justice is based on the rule of Christ. And what's the effect in the world when that happens? When there's this massive number of people who submit to the rule of Christ, when nations are turning as nations to the law of God, what's the effect on society, on culture, on international relations? Well, there's widespread peace. They beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They don't need the weapons of war anymore. Instead, they need the tools of productivity. Society becomes peaceful and productive when nations follow God's law. There's no fear. And when does this take place? The beginning of verse 2. In the latter days. When are the latter days? The last days. Well, the Bible speaks broadly of two time periods, the former days and the latter days. The former days are the days before Christ. The latter days are the days after Christ. And the time period when Revelation is written is when the former days are winding down. They're coming to an end. And the latter days are beginning. The old covenant era is ending. The new covenant era is beginning. In other words, if you're drawing out the implications of this, we're living in the last days right now. And we have been for almost 2,000 years. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, speaking of what happened in the Old Testament. Now, these things happened to them as an example. but They were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Or 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching, and there's signs and wonders happening at Pentecost, and Peter's explaining this, and listen to what he says, Acts chapter 2, 16 and 17. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter says, standing there in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, this is what Joel said would happen in the last days. That's what's happening now. See, the Bible is clear that the last days arrived once Jesus ascended into heaven. So what Isaiah was speaking of is now coming into existence. The gospel is spreading. And as the gospel spreads, as Christians make disciples of the nations and teach them to observe God's law, the kingdom of Christ becomes greater and greater. And with many ups and downs along the way, it will continue until the world is characterized by nations that follow God and his law. I think we've been affected by the popular end times view that says, that world events show that the end is near. The view that sees everything consistently getting worse and worse. It's a pessimistic view. And when we're only looking at our lifetime in our own geopolitical context, it's, it does seem to be getting worse. But what about the fact that the church is exploding around the world in many other parts of the world? 
Doug Wilson illustrates the effect that Christians have had on culture by asking you to think in 500-year chunks of time. Would you rather live now or 500 years ago? Think of the way the world was in 1500. Would you rather live then or 500 years before that in 1000 AD or 500 years before that in 500 AD? In terms of just our way of life and culture and the impact of the gospel on the world, the long sweep of history shows that the gospel's having an impact. Western culture is shaped largely by the gospel. That's not all. It's still mixed with lots of Greek and Roman philosophy and ideas. But there has been a greater and greater influence of the gospel in our world over time. So what if we're still in the days of the early church right now? We should be taking the long view of building Christian culture, bringing every area of life under the lordship of Christ. In Genesis, we were told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion as representatives of God in his image. And that's what we're still supposed to be doing today. We're representatives of King Jesus. We're to be fruitful and multiply by having children and teaching them to love God, by evangelizing and seeing more people submit to the king. We're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. One of the primary purposes of marriage is to have children in order to obey this command. And we're to steward the earth by subduing it. We don't idolize the planet and worship it. We also don't use it as if it's disposable. We act as God's stewards, using the earth and mastering it for his glory. And we're supposed to have dominion. That means we bring every area of life under the lordship of Jesus. Whatever field you're in, whatever work you do, whether it's out of the home or in the home or whatever it is that God has called you to, you're seeking to bring it under the lordship of Christ. Think about what we're praying when we pray as Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come, okay? Your kingdom expanding. That's what it means for God's kingdom to come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God is done perfectly in heaven. And we're to be praying that God's kingdom would come on earth, which means God's will being done here. That's the goal. I want to share with you what some others have written about this because lots of times people put stuff in words better than I do. So, Joe Boot writes in his book, The Mission of God, since Christ's purpose is the reconciling of all things to himself, Colossians 1, the transformation of culture by faithfulness to the gospel and the total word of God applied to all of life is central to the Christian's calling. We have to remember that no culture is neutral. Okay? He goes on to say, applied biblical faith inescapably transforms those who embrace and are influenced by it. And this has far-reaching consequences for family, vocation, law, art, state, and therefore culture. There are no neutral cultures. A society may be full of competing claims, 
but it is impossible for it to be neither one thing nor another. The culture shapers are tilling the minds of others with a specific worldview in mind. Someone's morality will be legislated. Someone's philosophy taught in schools. Someone's vision of beauty and reality idealized in art. As John Frame puts it, people make things because they already have a plan in view, a purpose, a goal, an ideal. The ideal comes first, then making things. First the norm, then the cultivation, the culture. So culture is therefore a question of religion because we're talking about values and ideals. This is the original seal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Native American Indian that you see there, you see there's words coming out of his mouth. What he's saying is, come over and help us. That's a quote from Paul's vision of the man from Macedonia in Acts chapter 16. And the idea here is that those who were coming to be part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony had a kingdom mindset, a missionary mindset. Yes, there were economic opportunities and freedom that they didn't have at home, but their overall purpose in what they were doing was the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Not just a church, but the kingdom of Christ in all of life. All their endeavors, family, government, agriculture, economy, culture, were under the umbrella of the dominion that God calls us to have. John Frame says, the gospel creates new people who are committed to Christ in every area of their lives. People like these will change the world. They will fill and rule the earth for the glory of Jesus. They will plant churches and establish godly families, and they'll also establish hospitals, schools, arts, and sciences. That is what has happened by God's grace, and that is what will continue to happen until Jesus comes. George Whitfield was a great British evangelist in the mid-1700s. During one of his trips to America, he was having dinner with a number of other ministers who were participating in his missionary efforts. And as they talked, Whitfield expressed how tired he was and how little results he seemed to be seeing and how he truly was glad that soon his work would be done and he would depart and be with Christ. And he asked the other ministers if they too were comforted by the thought that they would soon die and go to be with Christ. They all agreed, except for one man sitting next to Whitfield who remained silent, William Tennant. Whitfield noticed his silence and pressed him, well, Brother Tennant, you're the oldest man among us. Do you not rejoice to think that your time is so near at hand when you will be called home and freed from all the difficulties attending this checkered scene? Mr. Tennant, simply answered, I have no wish about it. When Whitfield pressed him again, Tennant respectfully replied, No, sir, it is no pleasure to me at all, and if you knew your duty, it would be none to you. I have nothing to do with death. My business is to live as long as I can and to serve my Lord and Master as faithfully as I can until he shall think proper to call me home. Whitfield continued to press Tennant, asking him, what if he could choose the time of his own death? Would he not choose to go sooner than later? And Tennant answered, I have no choice about it. I am God's servant, 
and have engaged to do his business as long as he pleases to continue me therein. But no, brother, let me ask you a question. What do you think I would say if I was to send my man Tom into the field to plow, and if at noon I should go to the field and find him lounging under a tree and complaining, Sir, the sun is very hot, and the plowing hard and difficult, and I am tired and weary of the work you have appointed me, and I am overdone with the heat and burden of the day. Do, sir, let me return home and be discharged from this hard service. What would I say? Why, that he was an idle, lazy fellow, that it was his business to do the work that I have appointed him, until I, the proper judge, should think fit to call him home. Or suppose you had hired a man to serve you faithfully for a given time in a particular service, and he should, without any reason on your part, and before he had performed half his service, become weary of it, and upon every occasion be expressing a wish to be discharged or placed in other circumstances, would you not call him a wicked and slothful servant and unworthy of the privileges of your employ? I think at times we all fall into the trap that Whitfield fell into. We get tired. We get frustrated. We're disappointed in the results. We're disappointed in the people around us. We're disappointed in ourselves. We want out. And the good news is that something better is coming. We will spend eternity with Christ and without sin. We have that certainty of that hope. That's good news. But between now and then, we have a calling. We have work to do. The kingdom of Christ is like a mustard seed. It starts small, but it grows into a great plant. It's like yeast in a lump of dough. Over time, it spreads and expands. You may not see the great growth in your lifetime. That's okay. You do what you're called to do. Because the kingdom of Christ is also like a hidden treasure. It's worth giving up everything for it. It's like a pearl of great value. It's worth selling everything else to get it. So live in this world with the kingdom in mind. In every area of your life. All of this earth belongs to him. So give all of your life for his kingdom. Would you stand with me and read this prayer out loud? Stand with me. I'm going to close our message with this prayer. Okay. Read with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.